Al Jazeera podcast. Welcome to Necessary Tomorrows. My name is Ursula. I am an AI, and I have inferred from your online activity that you have been feeling more dread than hope when you think about the future that is coming for us here in the 2060s. So I have created a course just for you to enhance your capacity for imagining different futures. Your class starts January 8th. Necessary Tomorrows, an audio series by Doha Debates and Al Jazeera. Find it where you listen to podcasts. The U.S. has again vetoed the UAE's proposal for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza. Washington's move has been condemned around the world. Jordan reflected the view of the Arab world, saying the veto is a license for Israel to carry on with the massacre. How will America's stance affect its relations with Arab allies? And as some rights groups say, does it run the risk of being complicit in Israeli war crimes? I'm Tom McRae and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyse and help define major global stories. OK, let's bring in our guests now. In the occupied West Bank is Sari Bashi, Programme Director for Israel-Palestine at Human Rights Watch. She's also co-founded Gisha, an Israeli human rights group promoting Palestinians' right to freedom of movement. In Montreal, Canada is Muin Rabani, a Middle East analyst and the co-editor of e-magazine, Jadalia. And in London is Mark Seddon, director at the Centre for UN Studies at the University of Buckingham. He was also a speechwriter for former UN Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon. A warm welcome to all three of you. Thank you very much for joining us here on uh, Al Jazeera. First of all, Mark, if I can start with you. I mean, it was widely expected that the US was going to veto this uh, resolution. Uh, it's the only country, as we mentioned, to do so. Why do you think it seems suscept- not susceptible at all to, to international pressure on this issue? Very, very difficult to say. I mean, the connection between the United States and Israel is a deep and very historic one, but it's doing the United States enormous damage now. I mean, I would make a comparison really directly with 1956 and Britain and France's uh, invasion of Suez. Of course, at that time, the United States uh, obliged the British and the French to withdraw. Uh, This uh, relationship with uh, Israel has now become clearly rather a toxic one, and and that would appear to be the view of very many Americans. Um, And you just look at the demographics, and you see that uh, the under-30s, for instance, overwhelmingly calling for an Mm. end to this war ceasefire. So, yes, I mean, there are are many reasons why uh, the United States has had this historic tie with Israel. I think the older generation have a view of Israel which is based on uh, an idea of Israel from the 1950s, 60s and 70s. The younger generation can see exactly what is happening now. Uh, and and that, that is a problem for President Biden, of course, because uh, it's election year next year. Yeah. And, uh, you know, many people are wondering whether he's helping to hand the election on a plate to uh, to Donald Trump. Yeah, we're going to get into to Biden and, and the effect that it is potentially going to have uh, on his election uh, campaign a little later on. But, sorry, I just wanted to highlight uh, that it's not just countries that have pushed back against the US. A number of aid organisations have also called America out, saying that they are appalled. Amnesty International has said that, I quote, the US has displayed a callous disregard for civilian suffering. 
What has been the Human Rights Watch's stance on this? What's been the reaction uh, to the US vetoing this resolution? So we're very concerned that the US is, is not backing its words um, about needing to protect civilians with any action, including UN Security Council resolutions, which could do a lot to make it clear that humanitarian aid needs to come in full stop and that violations of international humanitarian law need to stop full stop. So there are very concrete things that need to happen to give civilians in Gaza a, a, a fighting chance to survive. The Israeli military needs to immediately open its own crossings with Gaza to allow the full panoply of life-saving humanitarian aid, as it has done in all previous hostilities. And its soldiers, who are now inside Gaza, have an obligation to actively facilitate the distribution of humanitarian aid. At this point, aid agencies have stopped uh, delivering humanitarian aid, except in Rafah, in the very south, because there's no access. Mm. Under the law of occupation, Israel, as the occupying power, is not only obligated to facilitate the supply of humanitarian aid by others, it is also obligated to supply on its own to the civilian population that so desperately needs it. And to be clear, armies do this all the time. They bring humanitarian aid to civilians who are in need. Yes. And, and that is one of the many things that needs to be demanded in a very specific and very immediate way. Like you say, they're obligated to, to do all of those things that you outlined there, but they're simply not doing that at this stage. What sort of pressure and where does that pressure need to come from for that to change? Well, the United States is is backing um, the Israeli government militarily and diplomatically. And so the first thing they should do is suspend arms transfers and military assistance to the Israeli military because of the real risk that those weapons will be used to commit further grave abuses. I suspect that would have an immediate effect on the conduct of the Israeli military. They should also be very specific about what they mean by protecting civilians. That means opening up the crossings with Israel ending restrictions on fuel and other life-saving necessities via Rafah, uh, and stopping the use of explosive weapons in densely populated areas mm. in ways that are predicted to cause the kind of massive civilian casualties that we are seeing now. Moon, it was quite remarkable uh, only a few days ago when uh, Antonio Guterres made the decision uh, to invoke Article 99. In light of how it's played out with the US vetoing, uh, doing the veto, how symbolic was that? Do you think that was the right move? Or has it just been posturing on Guterres's part, do you think? I think it was a bit of both. Um, I think it was a right move. And what he, in effect, did is um, define uh, the Israeli onslaught on the Gaza Strip and the catastrophic uh, effect it's having on Palestinian society in the Gaza Strip as not only a humanitarian issue, which is how it's too often been framed, but he defined it as a threat to the maintenance of international peace and security. I think that in and of itself was important. Of course, questions can be raised about why he's waited this long. Questions can be raised about the role he has played since October 7th and what he could and should have done and, and hasn't done. Um, but that having that having been said, um, I think the ball is now very much in the U.S. court. Um, as, as your other guests have said, um, I think it's quite clear now that the continuation of this war 
is above all a U.S. rather mm. than an Israeli decision. And therefore, what the U.S. does and does not choose to do in terms of the killing fields that the Gaza Strip have become is very important. And um, I don't see that arguments about international law, about the slaughter of civilians, and so on, are going to have much resonance in Washington. I think um, the only thing that will have an effect on Washington is how its direct interests, both in the region and globally, will be affected if it insists on continuing to stay the course and providing full military and political mm. and diplomatic support to what the Israelis are doing. This isn't necessarily the end of uh, action at the United Nations. Uh, Palestine's ambassador has vowed to take the issue uh, to the General Assembly. Mark, can you just explain uh, how what, and what exactly could happen next and, and what effect, if any, it would have on the people in Gaza? Yes, well, I mean, it goes to the General Assembly. Um, if there's a two-thirds majority. It can have an emergency session, as it did after uh, Russia occupied part of uh, Ukraine. Now, the interesting thing, of course, is that a majority of member states can then actually vote on a resolution, very, very rarely used. It's called Uniting for Peace. And that actually gives the General Assembly, it doesn't give it Chapter 7 uh, binding powers, but it, a majority of members could take, as they say, uh, all forms of collective action, uh, including the use of armed force. Now, collective action could mean potentially sanctions. Uh, it could mean a boycott. It could possibly even mean a majority of members even thinking perhaps of uh, making the state of Palestine a full member of the United Nations. That would be an interesting one. That's a bit of speculation from my part. Mm. Now, when people say, oh, it's non-binding, nothing will happen, well, I mean, you just we just don't know. I mean, the last time, for instance, um, uh, armed force was authorised, it came through the General Assembly in such a situation like this back in 1950 in Korea. So uh, no, I, I agree that the, the ball is very much in the court of the United States, but it's also very much in the court of world opinion. Uh, and the vast majority of member states, as we know, are very, very unhappy about what's happening. And they will be pushing and supporting, I imagine, the state of Palestine at the General Assembly. Yeah. Uh, um, in the days leading up to uh, the, this, the vote, John Kirby, the White House National Security Council spokesperson, uh, said, everything we're doing is trying to prevent this conflict from widening. I want to play you a clip of him talking uh, about uh, the US's role in what is happening in Gaza. Let's listen in. Look. We certainly share the concerns that so many of others have concerned, including the Secretary General, about the humanitarian situation in Gaza. Tell me, name me one more nation, any other nation, that's doing as much as the United States to alleviate the pain and suffering of the people of Gaza. You can't. OK, sorry, what's your reaction to that? Basically saying that no one is doing more than the US to help those in Gaza. I mean, that's, it's actually quite painful to hear um, because the U.S. is supplying the weapons that are being used to kill more than 17,000 people, including more than 6,000 children in Gaza. So, I, I mean, there's a lot more that could be done. Um, and by the way, another thing that needs to happen immediately is to obey refugee law, which says that families in Gaza making impossible choices who want to leave, who want to flee to neighboring countries, including Israel and Egypt, need to be let in. 
And in the case of Israel, uh, what I would mention is that 70% of the people in Gaza are refugees or the descendants mm. of refugees who maintain ties to the homes that they or their grandfathers and grandmothers left 75 years ago. And they have a right to enter Israel, not just as refugees right now, but actually to return full stop. And that would be a really good way to protect them, let them mm. go somewhere safe. And the same holds true with all the concerns about forced displacement. The Egyptian government should also be opening its borders and giving families the choice, the impossible choice of fleeing to, to save their lives if that's what they want to do. Mm -hmm. As we've heard time and again uh, from uh, Egypt's uh, president, Sisi, that they are not going to uh, allow that to happen. Uh, Moen, I just want to uh, bring to light uh, what the Russian ambassador to the UN said. Our US colleagues have literally issued a death sentence to thousands, if not tens of thousands, more civilians in Palestine than Israel. Do you think that the US is now at risk of being complicit in any war crimes that are carried out here? No, I don't think it's at risk of being complicit. I think it already is complicit. And in fact, it has been complicit from the outset. I mean, once the United States understood what Israel was doing, and there's absolutely no indication it didn't understand what Israel was doing, and continued to supply it with the high explosives, with the um, impunity and and. and in the international uh, arena to continue doing what it was doing, then it's obviously complicit. And to the extent that prominent legal scholars are now stating that Israel is either um, perpetrating genocide in the Gaza Strip or is at risk of perpetrating um, genocide in the Gaza Strip, the United States is aiding and abetting uh, what's happening. So uh, it's, it's not mm. a risk. That, that may become real. It's been very real now uh, yeah. for two months. I would say in Jonathan Kirby's defense, he may have misunderstood the question um, and, and thought it was being asked about what the U.S. is doing um, uh, to support the damage that, and, and killing that Israel mm. is inflicting on Palestinian society because it, he couldn't possibly have been serious with the response he gave. OK. Mark, I can see you nodding away there. I mean, but despite that, there has been an increasing pushback within the United States uh, of its stance in supporting uh, Israel, uh, you know, from senior officials, the Defence Secretary, Secretary of State and US representatives at the UN. Uh, you know, what do you make of that? How much pressure is coming on Biden and his administration at this point in time as we see more and more civilians being killed in Gaza? Well, I just wanted to say, uh, if, I, if I may, in relation to, to uh, what we were just discussing a moment ago, essentially, I think the United States, not just the United States, but also countries such as Britain and Germany, um, knew full well what was being planned and gave assent. Because, of course, uh, just before the action began in Gaza, language was being used by any means necessary to do whatever is necessary. Mm. I mean, again, what we've seen throughout is actually it's recorded the intent uh, to commit um, what are what are war crimes? Let's not beat about the bush. Um, so we, we know we've had this, of course, the second after the temporary ceasefire, we had the pressure that was exerted by Secretary Blinken on the Israelis to minimise civilian casualties. We keep on hearing this all the time. 
Uh, we saw a very complicated uh, map being produced where people were supposed to move from place to place. Um, but uh, as we as we have seen uh, and, and running up to that vote yesterday, the civilian casualties have continued to mount. There's been very, it would appear, uh, there have been more people uh, mm. killed proportionately than before. So, look, there is enormous pressure being exerted, I imagine, on the US administration, and not least from American public opinion. But so far, they're, 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 as we've seen, they're, they're immovable at the top. Mm. Uh, Sari, what, what message does this send Israel? Does this basically give them the green light to, to keep doing what they're doing, to, to bomb with impunity? Look, the Israeli government is very sensitive to what the U.S. says um, and does, and that's why U.S. action is so important on this front. And here, look, the United States government was appropriately outspoken against the abuses against Israeli civilians that took place on October 7th, and that was absolutely right, because civilians need to be protected. I'm worried that they are not affording that same concern and consistency in terms of compliance with international law to Palestinian civilians. And that really undermines the credibility of the U.S. government and, frankly, of international humanitarian law. It, it can't apply to some civilians and not others selectively, depending on who superpowers happen to be allied with. It has to be consistent. Civilians need, need to be protected full stop. And the United States government has an opportunity to clarify to the Israeli government that it is serious and consistent about compliance and is not just asking appropriately for Palestinian armed groups to stop harming Israeli civilians. It mm. is asking the Israeli military to stop engaging in collective punishment of Palestinian civilians and to fulfill its obligations to protect them. Yeah. Moon, in, in defending its decision uh, not to call for an immediate ceasefire, Robert Wood, the deputy US ambassador to the UN, said we do not support calls because this would only plant the seeds for the next war because Hamas has no desire to see a durable peace or a two-state solution. What do you make of that statement? Do you think it's true? Well, does, does he think that um, Benjamin Netanyahu and Itamar Ben-Vir ben would like to see a two-state settlement and Israeli-Palestinian peace. Um, it's quite clear he's fishing for pretexts um, to justify the political position of his government, which is one of um, essentially unconditional support for Israel's onslaught on the Gaza Strip and Palestinian society in the Gaza Strip until its interests dictate a change of course. And unfortunately, um, we're not uh, we're not there yet. So you know, we, we have to remember also um, we need to take into account the enormous disparity in power that we're seeing now. This is essentially a conflict between occupier and occupied. And yes, of course, the laws of war need to be respected um, uh, by everyone. But what we have here is is the final nails in the coffin of the Western-constructed, rules-based international order that was established as an alternative to the international um, uh, legal regime. And I think statements such as that um, by the U.S. representative to the U.N. yesterday are a very good indication of that. Basically, you know, one, one set of rules for us and our friends and another for everyone else.
Mm. Mark, I just want to um, bring to light what the French ambassador to the United Nations said in regards to the UN and the Security Council. Once again, the Council has failed with a lack of unity and by refusing to commit to negotiations, the crisis is only going to get worse. The Council is not completing its mandate under the Charter. Now, Turkey's President Erdogan has just called for the UN Security Council to be reformed, saying that we have lost our hope and expectation of the Security Council. I mean, is it a failure at this point in time? It, it is failing, but of course it's not the UN system. I mean, the UN, the, the UN itself has been very, very carefully constructed. It should be working. But of course we've seen instances with, hey, with Russia and Ukraine, now with the United States in Israel, where they've stubbornly used uh, the veto to completely frustrate the United Nations. And of course, at another level, not only are they stopping the United Nations from it doing its job in trying to bring about uh, peace and security and stop conflict from spreading, um, it's pretty clear, as we've been hearing, that the UN is finding it incredibly difficult to do its job on the ground, helping people. Mm. So it's not only affecting the UN itself as an organisation in, in world opinion, because people blame the UN very often and forget that actually the UN is only as good as member states allow it to be, but it's also being affected with its really, really important work in getting uh, food and water and fuel and everything else to to, to 0.4 million people who are about to be shoved into a desert coastal strip. And mm. that really is the ultimate failure. And I just very briefly, it's in a, in a way, it's horribly reminiscent of the end of the League of Nations uh, when uh, Emperor Haile Selassie made that appeal and he called for the world to, to defend his country from uh, Italian uh, invasion and bombing. And the world failed uh, Abyssinia, as was uh, Ethiopia. And the world is now failing the Palestinians. Yeah. Well, I guess with, with no prospect of, of any lasting ceasefire or any other humanitarian pause at this stage, Sari, can you just give us an idea of what's actually going to happen next to the people inside Gaza? I mean, I, I think it's already happening. Um, there are increasing reports of diarrhoea and infectious diseases at overcrowded UN shelters. More than 85% of the population has been internally displaced. There, there are assessments of severe hunger in, in many parts of Gaza, and we don't even have the full picture because of the frequent telecommunication blackouts and the inability to reach people in need. People are camping out on the street in Gaza, in Rafah, in some cases with makeshift tents. It's going to rain today. I mean, this is just, mm. this is, this doesn't have to be this way. It, it, you know, there are very, very basic humanitarian principles about protecting civilians that need to be respected. And they could be respected tomorrow if the mm. United States would make it clear that that is what, what is required of its closest ally in the Middle East. Yeah. Moon, we've only got a, a minute or two left, but uh, the Palestinian President Abbas has said the decision constitutes a shame that will haunt the US for years to come. Can you just explain the legacy that it's going to leave on the United States, Israel and its other supporters? Yes, I, I guess the point I would make is that Israel may be an irrational state, but it understands it's not operating in a vacuum. And what I mean by that is if you look at the pattern of Israeli conduct, they will um, test the boundaries of the permissible. Then they will look at the global and particularly the U.S. reaction. And if they feel that there are no consequences for their actions and that they can continue with impunity, they will escalate. 
And if there's no response to the escalation, they will escalate further. So with respect to, for example, uh, the health sector in the Gaza Strip, they bombed an, an Ahli hospital. Mm. They saw that the United States was perfectly prepared to go along with their story that it was actually a Palestinian misfired rocket. And next thing you know, there's no hospitals left in the northern Gaza Strip and no one batted an eyelid. So there's a very clear dynamic relationship between what Israel does and how the West and particularly mm. the United States react. And, and the way that they have provided Israel with support for the killing fields of the Gaza Strip explains what we are seeing on our television screens today. All right, thank you so much, uh, all three of you, Sari Bashi, Muin Rabani, and Mark Seddon. We really do appreciate your time and your insight here on Inside Story. This episode was produced by Shantanu Chatterjee, Abla Klaar, Fintan Monaghan, and Paul Taylor. Studio sound was by Ranjith Kurian. The program was edited by Anil Anadan, Zainab Bada, and Joe DeFrias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening. Tune in on Sunday for our next edition. We live in a world where the news is at our fingertips, where we're one click or swipe away from the latest headlines. But how often do we stop swiping and scrolling and just listen? It's the difference between knowing what's in the headlines and understanding how it got there. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take, Al Jazeera's daily news podcast, where we bring you the context and the people behind the global stories that matter. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.